Welcome to One Chapel. We're a family of neighborhood churches in the Austin area. Our vision is to help people move from where they are to where God wants them to be. It's a place to connect, grow, and serve the communities where we live. You can learn more about One Chapel and how to get involved at onechapel.com. And now, here's this week's message. Now last week, you might be aware we launched a brand new series called Overwhelmed. Everybody say overwhelmed. Yeah, that's kind of what it feels like right there. Overwhelmed. It's hard to get up for this kind of a message, but last week we talked about anxiety, and it was, it was a really meaningful message. And if you missed it, you can go back and listen to the podcast. But our commitment is to talk about these heavy-duty subjects, anxiety, depression, stress, mental health, um, even going to talk about the dark night of the soul near the end. Um, I'll, I'll invite a mental, mental health expert who's going to join us in a couple of weeks and kind of give us his perspective on what's happening in our culture. Uh, and so I said this last week, but I'm fully aware that this is a huge topic and I can like barely touch the surface of some of these. But the, the reality is we won't be able to resolve this in a few short weeks, right? We, won't, we, we don't resolve all these issues that we're talking about, but, the, but maybe the goal instead could be that we would open the door for this to be a safe place to talk about these things. And that we would, we would make it okay to talk about the struggles and that there would be a, a place where we could care for one another in a way that allows each other to understand the good news of Jesus. Because if the good news of Jesus Christ is anything, it is the idea of being fully known and fully loved. Fully known and fully loved by the Savior, by His broken body on a cross and his body here among us as a community. Like we want to be known here in this community. And so more than anything, my desire for you is to connect in a smaller group of people where you are talking about these things. And that's why this handout is so important. It has some groups on it, but, but I want you to connect in a way during this series that will help you discuss these ideas. And last week was anxiety. Today, we're going to talk about depression. We're going to talk about depression. It seems like everywhere you look, people are dealing with depression. We've had several high-profile suicides because people are struggling with depression. Just in the last year or so, Anthony Bourdain, who's a CNN host and a, a, a travel documentarian, he, 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 he died taking his own life because he was struggling with depression. Kate Spade is another high-profile person. She was a, a fashion designer and a businesswoman, and um, she took her own life because of a struggle with depression. Last week, a very high-profile pastor, committed suicide, and he had a whole ministry devoted to anxiety and depression and mental wellness. And that's the second pastor in the last year and a half that's a high-profile pastor that has committed suicide. We are living in a, in a time and a season that is so heartbreaking to see these stories, and we're all part of that story. We're all watching it happen. 
and it's heartbreaking to say the least, but I, I believe that society, that our culture, and yes, our church needs to have an awakening to really talk about these things. In, we, we're going to have an awakening in regards to our priorities and how we address mental health. We need to raise awareness and the love of God to deal with these very difficult subjects and those who are suffering with depression. Now, you need to know right off the bat that I'm, I'm not an expert in any of these subjects. I'm a pastor that's done some research and that's counseled uh, hundreds, even thousands of people over many years, and I'm convinced that if you're dealing with depression, God wants to bring healing, he wants to bring relief, and he wants to bring peace into your soul. I believe that with all my heart. I'm convinced of it. And so as I look at the scriptures, as we look at the scriptures today, I want you to lean in to this very complex subject. And let's start with a definition of depression. Because I believe we have to know what we're dealing with. Depression, it's in your handout, is a mood disorder characterized by anhedonia, which is the inability to feel pleasure, the loss of the ability to feel pleasure or joy or happiness. The description, the de definition goes on, extreme sadness, poor concentration, sleep problems, loss of appetite, and feelings of guilt, helplessness, and hopelessness. As I was reading that this week, I realized that we've all experienced some of these things. We've all experienced some of this in our own life, and that's the clinical definition of depression. But in layman's terms, in, in terms that are a little less, um, a, a little less technical, it's been defined like this. A pit. A high-energy vortex that keeps pulling you down and down and down. It's like one of those dreams where you're just falling and falling. And there seems no end to it. And if this wasn't enough, slowly the light appears to dim above you. Before you know it, you're surrounded by this dark, empty space filled with nothing but your own negativity and suffering. And then from that darkness, thoughts appear that it, maybe it's just better to curl up and die somehow rather than make futile efforts to climb back up towards the little rays of light that still sometimes penetrate this dark, soulless pit. When you look at these definitions, I think the reality is that every single one of us deal with depression in some shape or form from time to time. There are at least two really meaningful moments in my life that I could point to, maybe more, where I think I was wrestling with a serious depression. One of them was right here at One Chapel when I got, when I got discouraged over some stuff that was happening in the church. 
we decided to go to a new location. We, we went to the Westlake Performing Arts Center. We moved our whole church to that place, and it's like we ran into a brick wall, stopped growing, and I was like, uh-oh, I've killed the church. <laughs> I really thought I'd killed the church. Now, sadly, that gives myself way too much credit because Jesus is the one who builds the church. <laughs> we can't, no one person can kill it. <laughs> and I had to learn that. But sadly, I went through several months where I just thought, I am not a good leader. I can't do this. I don't know where we're headed. I don't know how to do this in a city like Austin. I don't understand what God is doing. And I couldn't get myself right. The truth is, there's all kinds of things in our lives that lead us to moments like that. Some of them seem reasonable because they're, they're horrible things that have happened to us. Some of them seem unreasonable and you only think it inside and hide it from everybody else. But the truth is, we've all experienced this from time to time. And then there are those of you who are, who are dealing with depression that's deeper. It doesn't just last a day or two or a week or a month or so, but lasts for months, lasts for years, and even decades where you're wrestling. Which is why it has been said that depression is the number one health issue in the world today, which is kind of shocking. Here's some statistics on this. The Journal of the American Medical Association cited a study that indicates an exponential increase in depression, and it said this. Check this out. People of each generation in the 20th century were three times more likely to experience depression than people of the preceding generation. Think about that. So as technology went up in our 20th century, so did depression in each generation. One out of nine people are currently on some kind of anti-depression medication. One out of five people have been on some kind of anti-depression medication. Over 80% of people who are clinically depressed are not receiving treatment. Check out that number. The, the number of people diagnosed with depression increases by 30% every year. An estimated 121 million people around the world suffer from depression. And to make things even worse, there's a negative stigma that's attached to depression. A negative stigma that, that sort of latches on in our own minds and in the minds of others. And this is, this is not right. Because if I, if I told you that I was physically sick today and that I, I had the flu or I had a cold, I would get sympathy and empathy from most of you. <laughs> because we don't think less of people who have a cold or the flu. But when you tell somebody that you have a mental illness or you have a brain illness... There's a negative stigma that attaches to it somehow in our culture, and sometimes people tend to look down on you. And listen, everybody, that stigma has to be removed in Jesus' name. Yeah. 
and especially has to be removed in this place at one chapel. It has to be removed in the community of faith, in the community of love that is God's people. Because whether you're dealing with physical sickness or mental sickness, this needs to be a safe place for everyone who's struggling and dealing with things like depression. And here's the truth of it. Sickness is sickness. And your sickness, whether it's physical or it's mental, is not your identity. Your sickness is not your identity. You have a different identity. As a Jesus follower, you are identified with Christ, even in the midst of the broken world that we live in, and even when that brokenness has crept into your body, and even when that brokenness is something you struggle with consistently. Because here's the truth, it's not a sin to be sick. That may be news for some of you. It's not a sin to be sick. I want to say right off the bat that we need to get rid of this old religious pressure that when you come to church, you have to be like on your game. Like you have to pretend that everything's good because all that's doing is it's giving a false image, this false image, this false picture that people who come to church are perfect. Listen, there are no perfect people here at One Chapel. I hate to burst your bubble, but I know a whole bunch of you. You are not, it's, they, you, you, there's, everybody here has got major flaws, including me, including our staff, including our team. Ask my wife, she knows. <laughs> Something terrible happens when we, when we accidentally or even purposely sort of orient ourselves into this way of thinking that, oh, those people all have it together. They don't. None of us do. And I want you to know, as your pastor here at this church, it's okay not to be okay. It's okay not to be okay. I want you to hear it and I don't want you to pretend that your marriage is okay, your family's okay, your finances are okay, your job is okay. I don't want you to have to pretend that you are emotionally, mentally, or spiritually okay. Now, when you come into church on a weekend, you know, you're like, hey, how's it going? Fine is the favorite answer. Pretty good. Oh, I'm busy. That's about as deep as it gets. Listen, I, what it, do I want you to walk in the doors and the first person says, hi, how are you doing? You just throw up on them? No, that's not, that is not what I'm talking about. But every one of us in this room have to belong to a place, a group of people where we are known and loved. There is no way around it. That's the only way you really deal with these things well. Because if, if you embrace the idea that everybody's doing good except you, that's pressure. And I don't know why we do this. There's some kind of American ethic, like, like all the successful people are like, hey, how's it going? Yeah, oh, life's awesome, yeah. People who use the word awesome way too many times. Like, get another word, man. 
But we kind of see these people as, oh, these are the successful people and the people that are struggling and kind of down. And just, I'm just like, mm, stay away from them. That's an American ethic that we have to reject because we are citizens of heaven before we are citizens of this culture. We got to create that culture here. This kind of idea is causing people to live isolated and lonely lives, trying to deal with depression all by themselves, and that silence is killing them. Listen, everybody, we have to stop this. We have to recreate it. The reason why we have to make sure it's okay not to be okay here is because if you don't believe that, if you don't believe it's okay not to be okay, you won't be able to get help here. You won't, be able, you won't be willing to admit it, which means you won't find help, which means you won't look to someone else to walk with you in this struggle. You won't find friends. You won't be vulnerable. You won't allow people to speak into your life. I, I, my first Catalyst group that I took through our Catalyst process, it was a group of guys, about eight or nine guys, and it was it an was a, a awesome, awesome group of guys. And... <laughs> so awesome. But what happened about three weeks in was it was definitely not awesome because what was going on is all these guys were coming to me. And I get it. I'm the pastor. I'm leading the group. Okay, fine. But they were all talking to me about these terrible things that were going on in their lives. But they wouldn't share it with the group. I don't know. There's this thing where we just don't want to tell people how bad we are. We don't want to reveal like the struggle somehow. We're somehow ashamed of it. And so I, I was like talking to these guys. I was like, listen, you guys got to talk about it in the group. And I would tee it up. I'd ask the right question. I'd be like, <laughs> nothing. Week four, I told one of the guys, he was talking to me, and I'm talking about serious things, like on the verge of divorce, uh, addicted to alcohol, addicted to prescription drugs, I mean, several other things that were just serious issues in their lives, and they wouldn't talk to the other guys about it. I was like, week four, if, we, if, if, if I ask the question and you don't tell your story, I'm going to call on you, and you're going to tell it. So I tee it up. It's right there. Silence. <laughs> And I'm like, okay, dude, tell your story. Tell me what you told me this week. <laughs> it's like, I told you, I warned you about it. He's like, oh, 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 oh I don't know. Oh, oh. He's, it's so weird how we protect. We self-protect. We're so scared. What happened was he told his story about being addicted to prescription drugs. And the group came alive. It rallied around him. Actually, the other guys started to tell their issues. It broke the dam, and it all happened week four. That group stayed together for the next two, two and a half semesters, and their lives were profoundly changed because they were willing to open up. I'm just telling you, that's the only way this gospel thing happens got to tell you got to tell what's really happening and this is important because too many people are wrestling with depression and anxiety and too many people are considering or even choosing to end their lives because they're struggling check these statistics out 1 million people worldwide commit suicide every year in 2017 47,173 suicides were reported in the United States, making suicide the 10th 
leading cause of death for Americans. In 2017, someone died by suicide every 11.1 second, or minutes. Suicide is the number two killer of kids aged 15 to 24. Think about that. This, this statistic surprised me. More people are age 45 to 54 will kill themselves than any other age group. Listen, we have to, I, I have to pause here and I have to talk about this kind of as a side comment. This, this, this idea of suicide, it's a taboo subject in church life and we, we have to talk about it. This idea that those who say that suicide automatically leads to hell obviously don't understand the totality of mental health issues in our world today. And they, they don't understand the basic theology behind compassion and God's all-consuming grace. Listen, everybody, heaven is a place for people who have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Not just a place for people who don't, who, where people don't commit suicide. We have to do better at educating one another on the things that we have a hard time wrapping our heads around. Because it is challenging. These are complex issues in the scripture. But mental health is a topic that Christians around the world have to, we have to figure this out. Because, because more and more people are struggling. The reality is mental, mental health issues can lead people to do things that they wouldn't otherwise do if they didn't struggle. Think about that. If you don't believe me, I'd encourage you to get to know somebody with PTSD or get to know somebody who has Alzheimer's. Get to know somebody with OCD. Mental health issues can lead people to do things that they wouldn't otherwise do if they didn't struggle. You wouldn't dare say that someone who died of cancer is going to hell just because of their illness, would you? I hope not. Then please don't assume that someone who died of suicide because of a severe depression is going to hell either. Both cancer and depression are illnesses. Both can lead to death. The deciding factor for someone entering heaven or entering hell, the deciding factor is knowing Jesus. Knowing Jesus as their savior, as their Lord, as their advocate, as their friend. And so, does God approve of suicide? No. In fact, I believe it's giving up on the purpose that he's given people. They give up on the purpose. Does God view suicide as a bad thing? Yes. Yes, because it's destructive to everyone in every way. Is God's grace sufficient even for those who have committed suicide? I believe yes. His grace is sufficient. 
Suicide doesn't lead people to hell. Not knowing Jesus is what leads them there. Not knowing Jesus as their Savior, as their Lord. And while suicide is in fact a sin that will be judged by God, we have to understand that stealing and lying and cheating is also a sin. These are sins that Christians commit sometimes on a daily basis, and yet they don't necessarily keep someone out of heaven. And let's be honest about this. I'm not the judge. You're not the judge. (laughs) And we can be thankful that we are not. We can be thankful that there is one who is perfect justice and perfect mercy who gets to decide these things. We don't know exactly how this all works but not knowing Jesus as Savior and Shepherd and Lord, that's what will keep us out of heaven, and that's Bible 101. That's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And this is why I think we can be confident that God doesn't judge our entire life by our worst moment. doesn't judge our entire life by our worst moment. And that being said, that being said, let me acknowledge, let me, let me unpack this idea for just a moment. Suicide is a permanent, irreversible attempt to solve a temporary problem. I want you to get that. It's a, it's a permanent, irreversible attempt to solve a temporary problem that causes excruciating pain to those left behind. And so listen, everybody, you don't have to... Here's, here's the thing you, you've got to leave here. If you don't hear me say anything else today, listen to this. You don't have to die to end the pain. You don't have to die to end your pain. I think there's hope. I think there's always help. Listen, it's, it's, it, listen everybody, it's okay to go through this stuff. It's okay to go through depression. You have to recognize, and we've got to create a space where you're not alone. Where you're not alone, and you don't have to hide this. You're not alone, you don't have to hide this. That's the kind of culture we're creating. Isolation is the thing that will hurt us. Isolating yourself, trying to deal with this on your own is the worst thing you can do. Catherine Green McCrate, in her book, Darkness is My Only Companion, she described her tortured journey through 10 years of extreme depression and bipolar disorder and how gathering with God's people helped her immensely. It's written in your message notes. She said, it is so important to worship in community, to ask your brothers and sisters in Christ to pray for you. Sometimes you literally cannot make it on your own, and you need to borrow from the faith of those around you. I love that phrase. Underline that. You need to borrow from the faith of those around you. This is what we are called to as a community. We are a communal faith. And sometimes when you're out of faith, you've got to borrow it from someone else who can help you figure it out and walk through it. This is so important for every single one of us to understand because you can't deal with depression on your own. 
You cannot deal with depression on your own. Because depression affects every part of your life, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. And as a result, you can't see yourself correctly. You can't see your life rightly in those moments. And so I want to talk with you about what God says about this because it's important that you know that God is not silent about all of this. The Bible has much to say about depression. Matter of fact, many of the people in the Bible went through times of great torment and depression. Moses is one of them. Moses, look at this in Numbers eleven fifteen. It says, if this is, this is God, this is Moses talking to God, and he says, if this is how you're going to treat me, please go ahead and kill me. If I've found favor in your eyes and do not let my, me face my own ruin. <laughs> this is Moses. This is a man of God who felt so wretched. He was so miserable, so low, so depressed, so discouraged that he said, oh God, if you really loved me, you'd just kill me. <laughs> yeah. This is Moses experiencing this. Job is another one. Job 7, 6 through 7, it says, My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle, and they come to an, an, an end without hope. Remember, O oh God, that my life is but a breath. My eyes will never see happiness again. Job is described as a man of God, blameless and upright, but yet he had ex an experience, many experiences that were so unimaginable. Staggering losses, long and painful illnesses that he, he had become completely hopeless. And then you have people like Jonah who ended up running from God and, and landing in the belly of a whale, of a giant fish with seaweed around his head and darkness. And if you read his, that passage, you, you, you can easily come to the conclusion he was depressed David, of course, you just read through the Psalms and you'll see David and the other psalmists expressing their ache, the ache of their soul to God. And then there's Elijah. Elijah, 1 Kings 19, has a story. There's an incredible story. You should read it this week, um, 18, 19, and 20. And, and Elijah has an incredible victory over an enemy. The power of God comes down and displays itself and all these enemies are defeated and then he runs away and gets depressed in the middle of the wilderness thinking it's, it's just him and God's left him. All these people, they were sucked into a downward spiral of depression and wanted their lives to end. It might also be encouraging to, for you to know that there is an entire book of the Bible called Lamentations which is about lamenting the life that is being lived. It's, it's written by the weeping prophet, Jeremiah, who was talking about his depression through the whole book and his story, the story of his people. Even the apostle Paul was another one who dealt with depression and suicide. You can read through it in the book of First and Second Corinthians and all the struggle he went through. And when you look at each of these people in the Bible, there are three things that they had in common that contributed to their depression, all right? They were physically run down, they were emotionally run down, and they were spiritually run down. See, every single one of the people in the Bible who dealt with depression, helplessness and hopelessness, each of them had gotten to a place where they didn't know what to do 
And they were physically, emotionally, and spiritually run down. And I, I think this is really important for us to understand because in your journey to health, in our journey to health on this subject, you have to address the physical issues that may be going on in your body. We tend to see ourselves just dealing with stuff spiritually. You gotta deal with this physical body. Please go see a doctor. Please go see a doctor. There's a, 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 so much about your brain that we've discovered. We still have much more to discover, but um, they, they, can, they can help see why it's not working the way God created it to work. And medical science has come a long way helping our messed up chemicals in our body and understanding it to get, ba get it balanced. God heals through medicine. I fully believe that. There's no doubt about it. But as well, you also need to address the emotional issues that may be going on inside of you. So often we have things that happened in our past. We got stuff that happened in our history and we just kind of bury it or we stuff it down and it's sitting in there, it becomes toxic waste and it becomes poison that starts to kill you from the inside out. Those are emotional issues and it, I know it's difficult, it's hard. You may feel shame about things from your past. But you have to understand those hurts, those wounds are killing you from the inside out. And then as well, you also need to address the spiritual issues that may be going on inside of you because the spiritual world is real. Everything, everything is spiritual. Even this physical world we're dealing with. You have an enemy in your, of your soul that wants to kill, steal, and destroy you. That's what John 10.10 says. And the tools he uses most, the tools he loves to use most are guilt and shame. Guilt and shame about any number of things. And so this has to be addressed. And now, uh, last thing I want you to see here is look at Psalm 77. Psalm 77. This psalm is an immensely helpful passage when you find yourself in a dark pit because it outlines three life-giving responses or maybe three life-giving steps you can take to regain your emotional equilibrium when life gets you down. Let's look at it in Psalm 77 because I think the problem for most of us is we may, we may know what to do, but we don't want to do it. And those are the moments when you need the most help, when you don't want to do what you know is right. And so look at, look at what the psalmist here, his name is Asaph, and he's writing this. I'm gonna read it from the Message Bible, which is a modern-day translation. It's kind of street language uh, through a translator named Eugene Peterson, and it's, it, it just kind of rings so true for what we experience in our day. It's, verse 1 says, I yell out to my God. I yell with all my might. I yell at the top of my lungs. He listens. I found myself in trouble and went looking for my Lord. My life was an open wound that wouldn't heal. When friends said everything will turn out all right, I didn't believe a word they said. I remember God and shake my head. I bow my head and then I wring my hands. The first life-giving step to take when you find yourself in the dark pit of despair and depression is to send an SOS to God. Send an SOS to God. Like reach out, admit you're in trouble. You need rescuing 
right away in this psalm, we hear Asaph's hopelessness. We hear his desperation. He feels like he's in a dark tunnel and there's no light at the end of that tunnel. And he describes how he's tried to get rid of depression in all the normal ways he used to, by all the normal means, and it wasn't working. And so notice what he does, because in his battle with depression, he doesn't pretend He doesn't bury his disillusionment. He doesn't fake happiness. There's no indication that he turned to food or shopping or alcohol or gambling or pornography to cope with these things. Instead, he gets honest with God. He gets honest, brutally honest. He actually yells at God. God's not afraid of your yell, He's not afraid of your doubts not afraid of the struggle. He yells at the top of his lungs. And this is such an important idea when you're stuck in depression because you can't keep it all in. You got to let it out. You got to let it out. Send up an SOS yell to God because Psalm 34 says the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. So pour your heart out to God, whether it's loud or whether it's soft, whether it's a yell or a quiet and desperate whisper. Look at verse four. He says, I'm awake all night. Not a wink of sleep. I can't even say what's bothering me. I go over the days one by one. I ponder the years gone by. I strum my lute all through the night. I'm wondering how to get my life together. Will the Lord walk off and leave us for good? Will he never smile again? Is his love worn threadbare? Has his salvation promise burned out? Has God forgotten his manners? Has he angrily stalked off and left us? Just my luck. I said the high God goes out of business just the moment I need him. Once again, I'll go over what God has done, laying out on the table the ancient wonders. I'll ponder all the things you've accomplished and give a long, loving look at your acts. The second life-giving step to take when you find yourself in that dark pit of depression is to redirect your thoughts. You got to redirect your thoughts. And you can see how Asaph felt stuck. He felt like God was a million miles away and it felt like God wasn't answering his prayers. And deliberately, he focused on his thoughts on those past times when God seemed near and when he could push back the darkness with just a song even though it's not working right now. And here's the challenge. Here's the challenge, One Chapel. Listen to me now. The challenge with this idea is the healthy brain, in the healthy brain, it's a matter of choice. In other words, I'm choosing to redirect my thoughts. But in the unhealthy brain, the brain that might be sick, choice may not be an option. A friend of mine who struggles with depression and brain illness says it this way, and I'm going to read his remarks. He said, think of choosing thoughts like this. You and I are both driving down roads. Your road, healthy brain, has exit signs lit up and clear visibility of exit ramps. Mine doesn't, he says. Mine either doesn't have the exit ramps at all, or there's construction, or there's overgrowth that's covering it up so I can't see it. And signs, ha, Maybe one or two strewn here or there, but definitely no lights. So you're telling me how to get somewhere based off your roadmap, not mine. Choose these thoughts equals choose this exit. Only I don't 
have or see that exit. Show me at what point in the road that exit shows up for you, and I'll try to find it on my road, but then stay with me and help me build the, road, the new road so I can exit. Help me build the new road so I can exit. I think this is so huge. This is the point because this is where you have to rely on others to think for you. My friend says it this way. My choice is in relying on others to speak into me. My brain won't on its own think, oh, I'm struggling. I should consider what God's done for me. But if someone shows up alongside me and says, wow, look at all the things God has been there for you, then I can choose to listen. I can choose to hear and receive what others are saying as truth. Even though I don't think it, I can will myself to agree with outside words. When I agree to the outside words, then they can become inside words. I want you to look at the last step, verse 13. It says, oh God, your way is holy. No God is great like God. You're the God who makes things happen. You showed everyone what you can do. You pulled your, your people out of the worst kinds of trouble, rescued the children of Jacob and Joseph. He's talking about the Red Sea. Verse 16, ocean saw you in action. God saw you and trembled with fear. Deep ocean was scared to death. Clouds belched buckets of rain. Sky exploded with thunder. Your arrows flashing this way and that. From whirlwind came your thundering voice. Lightning exposed the world. Earth reeled and rocked. You strode right through ocean. Walked straight through roaring ocean. But nobody saw you come or go. Hidden in the hands of Moses and Aaron, you led your people like a flock of sheep. I want you to see this third life-giving step, and I want the band to come to the stage because the third life-giving step when you find yourself in a dark pit of depression is magnify God to diminish your problems. In other words, make God bigger. And the best magnified glass you've got in your possession is worshiping him. The best magnifying glass you've got in your soul when it's dark and dreary is to open up your heart to God and pour it out and worship him in a way that can recalibrate your soul. It makes him bigger and it makes problems smaller. The reality is worship is not a natural instinct for depression. When gloom closes in, and all that once drove your life kind of fades and you can't figure it out. We tend to want to pull the blanket over our head and bail out on God and everything else, everybody else. But Asaph here, he wills himself to come to worship. He makes himself remember the goodness and the greatness of God. And as Asaph worshiped, faith began to rise in him. It moved him from a dark and destructive funk to a God-enthralled declaration of faith. And there is no better way to worship than with people. Verse 14, and then Evie says, you are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the people. Listen, everybody, if you're dealing with depression, God wants to bring healing and relief and peace because he's the God who still performs miracles. 
So I want you just to pause here and just close your eyes for a moment and we're gonna enter into a time of worship here to end. And as you, as we worship together, I, I just wanna give you this way of thinking about it. Because some of you are just not in a place where you want to even speak up or say anything. Or, and there's a story in the Bible of King Saul and how tormented he was during a certain season of his life. He was tormented with anger and depression and worry. And they called in a musician. And that musician was David. He was a shepherd boy. And he began to play on his harp and he began to sing and worship God and something the Bible records that something happened to Saul that something happened to him on the inside when that worship began to be played the torment was driven from him the Bible says and peace came upon him maybe you're not maybe you're not in a place where you feel like you can even open up and worship but Maybe you could just allow the worship team to worship over you. Maybe you could just sit and allow for God's peace to settle on you. Let him put his love and grace and mercy into your soul in a way that is soothing and merciful. Father, we just come to you and we, as we enter just a moment, a few moments of worship, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to clear everything else, all the clutter away. You'd allow us to hear you, to see you, to know you. Let faith rise in our hearts. Even if we need to borrow from the person next to us, let faith rise in us. Rescue us. Rescue our hearts from this darkness. In Jesus' name. Thanks for joining us today. If God is doing something in your life or you're looking for ways to get connected, you can learn about groups, teams, and more at onechapel.com welcome. You can subscribe to future messages from One Chapel on your favorite podcast player. And of course, you're always invited to services every Sunday morning at 9 and 11. See you next time.